This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, David Purdy. He is a ESPN staff writer with a focus on sports gambling. I think he's the, the best at what he does in the country. And in the podcast, we discuss uh, sort of the gold rush at the moment for all sports media people who uh, are moving from traditional sports media jobs into the sports gaming space. We're seeing a lot of those. David has some uh, some interesting uh, observations and thoughts on that, and uh, including the sort of the where it gets a little ethically challenged if you're a reporter who ultimately morphs into this space and, uh, you know, can you be an insider and work for one of these uh, companies? Interesting stuff there. We get into college football, pro football handles and sort of trends this season, uh, why sports betting is a long-term investment in a grind as opposed to something quick, um, sign-up bonuses and what's going on with them. And uh, then we get into a couple things of just like uh, well, in terms of uh, – uh, how many people are betting on international soccer and table tennis and some other stuff. So really enjoyed David Purdom. He's followed by Mirren Fader. She's a staff writer at The Ringer, but um, has a new book, which has gotten incredible reviews out. Uh, Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Obviously, uh, the story of Giannis and uh, his incredible, uh, I mean, just incredible upbringing and uh, rise from where he was in Greece and everything he faced, including racism, to obviously landing in the States and becoming one of the, the you know, the bright lights of the NBA. Mirren interviewed more than 220 people for the book. Um, she's always been a gifted writer, but uh, you can really see the reporting shine in this. And we talked about the, just how the book came to be, what she had to do to report it during COVID, um, and, uh, and how one promotes a book during a pandemic, which is, which is not easy. So if you're an honest fan, I think you'll, uh, I think you'll appreciate that. So David Purdom first, Mirren Fader second, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, David Purdom returns to this podcast. He's an ESPN staff writer. Uh, if you are into sports gambling at all, you absolutely know his name. I find his stuff fascinating. I think he's the best at what he does in the entire country. So when you're reading about uh, sports gambling stories, sports gambling trends, where handles are, um, all that stuff, uh, David Purnham is, uh, is a really great person to, uh, to read and follow. And pleased uh, to be joined once again by David Purnham on the Sports Media Podcast. David, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Richard? I'm doing good. Listen, thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, you know, August for you is obviously a very busy and interesting month. We're about to hit the college football. We're ha- about to hit the NFL. Um, and I will get to those two sports. Here's where I want to start with, if uh, if cool by you, because I am, uh, this is very much sort of a, 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 a sports media topic writ large for me. And it's really, really interesting. And we have seen now, David, a lot of I'm going to put sports media sort of in caps here. A lot of sports media staffers, so that that incorporates everybody from TV types to print types to digital types to audio types. We have started to see people start to work for uh, companies in the sports gaming space, either on like a full-time basis, like, you know, like, like those at the Action Network, let's say, to even this this week, Trey Wingo becoming the chief trends officer. I think that's his correct title. It's a longer title than that, but we'll leave it at that for now. Um, for Caesars. So these are really fascinating sort of moves to me in that I think we're just at the beginning of this. I don't think we're close to the end. And, and it seems clear that there is a lot of money to be made if you are okay to lead traditional journalism and work for one of these places. Very open-ended question for you. How do you see what's going on in the, in the marketplace there? Well, you nailed it. Uh, we are seeing a convergence of sports books turning into sports media outlets. Um, they are providing their own content, uh, digital, written, all of it. Um, so we're kind of seeing these sports books expand outside of what their traditional 
uh, business model is and becoming these, you know, multimedia outlets. Um, I was talking to Jason Robbins, DraftKings CEO, probably a month ago, and he was just on, uh, I think it was CNBC this week, uh, talking about the same subject. And I, you know, I said, hey, are you, is your guys' ultimate goal to be like ESPN? You want to have all the games and broadcast the games uh, within your sportsbook platform? And he said, you know, he didn't want to be presumptuous and he made that clear, but he said, you know, actually we want to be Amazon. So they are looking to be this monster multimedia company. And to do that, they're going to have to bring in some media people with media experience, whether that's reporters or personalities. Uh, we've started with personalities, right? Trey going over there. Um, I would say that Teddy Greenstein, a longtime Chicago Sun-Times. Yeah, uh, Darren Ravel. Darren well, Ravel. Action Network's a little bit different, but yeah. Correct. I'm Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. It was like, yeah. So in some name, pe- quote unquote, name people um, heading there. Trey Wingo, by the way, is official title chief trends officer and brand ambassador. OK, so this this sort of David leads to like something really, really uh, interesting. And you would know this better than me. But is there essentially endless amounts of money to make these offers and to procure media talent? Well, yes, I'm going to say yes, because. Everybody is going to continue to gamble. Gambling has been around for ever since there have been people uh, to, to have competitions. There have been people to bet on them. Um, we're talking way back into the Roman ages when there are chariot races and people betting on them. There's this great uh, book, um, Roll the Bones by Dr. David Schwartz out of UNLV. He found that dice were actually made out of bones, animal bones back in the day so people could gamble. So we're just going, how far gambling has been there? So it's always going to exist and there's always going to be money in it. And that money is growing and growing and growing and it's going to attract uh, bigger and bigger personalities. Okay. So I want to continue this sort of sort of train of thought here. So if guys like Wingo are sort of in as part of the first iteration I, maybe they're not even part of the first series like maybe brent musburger uh in visn as part of you know wherever you want to place it I, I realize there's you know there are others who have done this before even those guys do you see like is the ultimate end game here one of these places whether it's a bet ngm or caesars or someplace like that do they eventually go to like adam schefter adrian wojanowski like people like who have that like sort of the the newsbreaker. That's a different world then. Like the 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 newsbreaker who is at the highest level of social media interaction, et cetera, and just say, listen, like we want what you do. We'll pay you five million, ten million, uh, whatever, fifteen million dollars a year. We just want to bring your brand or what you do onto to us. That doesn't necessarily mean a Schefter or a Wojnarowski or a Passin or those kind of types would take the take the job. But isn't this ultimately, it seems to me, where we're ultimately leaning? Because if these places really want to make a splash, why wouldn't you grab um, the ultimate sort of content play, which are the people who sort of break these transactional news things every day? It's a really sticky question, right? Because if you were to get a newsbreaker and they were on the scene at games and they were to break an injury and the first person they have to report it to is the sports book and the sports book uses that information to adjust the odds before the public gets it. Now you're looking at a little bit of inside information and it's going to get very, very sticky. I would wonder if, uh, you know, one of those guys were to go work for a sports book, all of a sudden is the league going to credential them? I don't know. There would be some, uh, at least some things to think about and uh, considerations uh, before anybody could do that. So I'm glad you brought that up because I have the, here's a situation in my world that, that I wanted to uh, get your take on, uh, you know, listeners can indulge me on this. Uh, it's a l- sort of self-serving, but it's, I think it's still interesting. Um, there have been times, uh, David, when I've talked to producers who are doing and directors who are doing the Super Bowl broadcast where the conversation will come up, where they'll mention sort of their philosophy, their philosophy on how many times like they might show um, the owner's box or how many times like they might show a celebrity uh, in the stands or a celebrity in the suites. And I know that there are, I believe, tell me if I'm wrong about this, there are prop bets basically where people can sort of bet on those kind of things. And I always really honestly never knew, well, you know, I know this, it is in- interesting information in sort of the sports media realm. Do I publish this or, or do I not publish this? Because if I'm publishing it, like, am I, 
Am I sort of throwing things off kilter where somebody might use what I just published to bet, but then I can't guarantee that the director or producer of the Super Bowl decides to do something different to, um, different than what they told me. I think, generally speaking, I almost always did it, but I always wondered about that. And in the same way, I wondered about if I was credentialed to, let's say, cover an NBA Finals or, a, or the Super Bowl or something like that, and I heard like the practice for the Star Spangled Banner. And I timed it, as we've seen a lot of reporters do. Well, that's massive information. And I know a lot of people bet on the the over-under for two minutes or over-under. Um, so how do you, I don't know, like, how, like I feel like media people are going to have to navigate this world now. And particularly, as you just mentioned before, like, if you work for one of these places, like, literally, this is going to come up every single day in your job. Exactly. Uh, you, you, you hit the story that I was going to talk about. This, this past Super Bowl, we had a reporter in Florida who was camped outside uh, just kind of working outside of the stadium. And all of a sudden, they cranked up the national anthem for a rehearsal and he recorded it. He recorded it and he posted it on Twitter. And there was this huge you know, uproar about it. And all of a sudden, what happens when something like that breaks and releases, the sports books start taking the bet off the board. You're not going to be able to bet it anymore because they're going to react to that, realize that the information is out there and they're going to halt betting on it. So uh, you definitely have a chance to impact uh, the betting market. Now, should that be a consideration of a reporter? I, I'm not really sure. Uh, you're reporting what you're told. You're reporting the news. You're reporting it factually as to what you were told and what your sources have told you. Um, do you have to say, gosh, is this going to impact the betting market? I, I, I don't think that's necessarily uh, a reporter's role. Do you, you know, one of the things uh, famous in horse racing was all the people who wrote about horse racing over the years bet on the horses. You know, there was a, I believe at Belmont, there was like a uh, a place you could bet like right outside the press box, if I'm wrong about that. Uh, it's not, it wasn't very far away. Um, how do you feel just as philosophically, um, the idea of reporters, writers who are covering an NBA, NFL, MLB game, being able to bet um, on that game, if if there are betting parlors ultimately that head in stadium, in arena, et cetera? You know, I, I've covered sports betting and I've covered traditional sports in a traditional manner. And when I was covering traditional sports, you know, every once in a while I would have a bet uh, on a game I've covered. I always felt I could remain objective uh, to that. I am a very small better. You know, I've logged in like $20, $22 to win $20. Uh, mainly for recreation, mainly so I make sure I stay in touch with what's going on in the betting market. Um, so as long as you are able to, you know, maintain your objectiveness, I, I don't think it's a big deal. I would point to people that have fantasy players on the team, uh, a team that maybe they're covering. Uh, of course, you're always going to have a rooting effort, interest in that. And then there's also going back to the old school newspaper. Uh, if a guy, if they had a, you know, a picks contest among their reporters all, and he's got his mugshot with all his picks. Well, of course he's rooting for those picks to do well. Right. So picks predictions uh, have always been kind of part of media coverage. You just have to make sure you remain objective uh, in your approach. So I, I would not have any uh, problem that now, if I found out some guy was betting, you know, big, big bucks. And he was using the information he got uh, directly from the coaches and before it maybe hit the the public uh, sphere, uh, then that might be an issue. But uh, overall, if you keep it uh, small and, and just maintain your objectiveness, it, it doesn't seem to cross any lines for me. Yeah, I find this very fascinating because like, I, you know, you don't want to be um, a hypocrite here in that like so many people, Sports media people are doing alternate forms of gambling. Like you play fantasy sports or rotisserie sports, like that is what it is. Um, so why should sort of legalized gambling be different? But then, David, as you know, it just it gets into a weird place where, like, you know, if you're doing it as you're covering the event as a reporter, um, you know, it's 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 it just I don't know it feels different. Again, I wouldn't ban it, but it feels different. But then it really gets to. You know, you really, I feel like, have to just guard and traffic against your staffers ever becoming problematic gamblers because that's when it really, I feel like, gets into a, a danger area where you start to use the perhaps the inside information that you get um, in a negative way. Absolutely agree. And I, yeah, I think there's some dividing lines there between 
analysts. So we have Daily Wager, our daily show. If we're up there, you know, giving picks and advice, uh, well, we hope that those people have some experience in the betting market, right? To have some sort of expertise. So now if I'm just a reporter that's reporting straight news and I've got inside sources, uh, maybe there should be some things in, in there in place where we have to be careful. But uh, there needs to be some dividing lines, some nuance in there, I believe. Well, I appreciate you discussing that with me. I find this fascinating as we're just at the beginning of all those conversations. If you, if you ask me, we are going to see a significant influx of traditional media people ultimately working for these places. I can't tell you how many. And I'm going to say today, I will be stunned if one very, very big name information type doesn't morph over, but it won't be as simple as that because as David pointed out, all the issues that happen and can that person still have the same sourcing in the league? Will the league even uh, accredit that, that, that writer, uh, that reporter? Uh, those are questions that are, you know, as we navigate this whole world, are ultimately going to have to be asked and answered. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, Let's switch to college football and pro football. Uh, One of the things that I saw in your work, David, was it seems like there's really like a significant uh, interest in NFL preseason football this year in terms of betting. Why is that? It's always that way. It's just the love of football. Um, And to a lesser extent, you know, the um, decline in fandom for baseball. Um, Many times we get NFL preseason, um, you'll get significantly more betting handle than most of the regular season baseball games. I think uh, the last one was at Cowboys Steelers Hall of Fame game. I, I believe at Caesars, it had twenty percent more money wagered on it, or more twenty percent more people. I believe it was bet on that game than bet on the most popular baseball game that was on last Thursday. So uh, preseason football, a lot of people. Oh, why are you going to bet on preseason football? But I had one of a professional better just tell me this week that you know he'll bet more preseason games. Uh, this preseason, the next two, three, four weeks, then he will the entire NFL season, probably multiple seasons, because the information and the lines are not as uh, sharp and um, in the preseason as they are during the regular season when you get so much more money uh, and the odds makers can see all the action coming in. So there are advantages to preseason while people may you know, scoff at it. Why would you bet that? Uh, there's actually some advantages and professional bettors target preseason football. Is it, is it more this year that you're finding than early on? That Well, I guess there's only been one game, so you really can't tell for another couple of weeks. No, I, I, I'm almost guaranteed, especially the first week. Now, it, it'll die down a little bit the second, third, fourth week of preseason. Um, it'll be less and less betting interest on it. But this first one, these games tonight will do big handle uh, all through the week, and we'll do big handle. College football, um, how much um, – how much attraction do the sort of the preseason like stuff get in terms of like Alabama is favored to win this amount of games over under or uh, Clemson is this uh, this favorite to uh, make the national title game? How, how much it, from your experience are people interested in betting on college football right now as we're a couple weeks away from games versus like that week one when I imagine obviously a massive amount of uh, of sports gamblers are interested just given the just the sheer number of games you can bet on you get a lot of interest in uh discussion on on the over-unders and the preseason title odds odds to win the heisman and so forth the betting handle on it is a lot lower than probably a lot of people think probably doesn't match up with the uh just overall discussion i'm in georgia so we get a ton of sec uh, attention here so it's probably a lot more interesting over here we have tennessee with legal sports betting north carolina with legal sports betting louisiana with legal sports betting mississippi so we're starting to see a lot more uh, sports books open here in, in the southeast and they are probably getting a lot uh, of interest uh, on those things but like you said once it gets into the regular season and this game by game saturday action uh, it really picks up 
college football is almost equal, draws almost equal handle as much as a bet on the NFL. Obviously, college has a lot more games uh, to bet on, but the handle is very, very close. Colorado is the only state that divides up the betting uh, action when it reports from college football and professional football, and it's very close between the two. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, what what do you see as the impact of Oklahoma and Texas ultimately moving to the SEC? Uh, how will that impact uh, uh, gambling? I, I would say, just as a caveat, I think you obviously know this, David. It, it, what one it means it's they won't be the only schools to like leave conferences, but those would obviously be the the two seismic ones that go to the SEC and and create this. Uh, you know, mega, yeah, yeah, you know, even bigger mega. Companies. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it'll have a, a serious impact on the gambling interest. Gambling interest is very, very high in the SEC as it is. Adding those two in will only make it higher. Um, I think it's a very interesting development. A lot of people were a little upset, traditional about it, but you know, I think college football kind of needs a, a shake up a little bit. And in fact, I've always been kind of a, a someone that thought maybe you can get in some kind of relegation. Uh, almost like EPL into college football and kind of see how that works. But uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, I don't think it'll have any kind of significant impact on the handle. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're going to have relegation regardless because there's, there's, there's going to be like two power conferences competing for titles. And then there'll be the the rest of college football sort of uh, playing elsewhere. All right. I want to get into your um, the piece that you recently did on ESPN.com, Rookie Betters Camp, basically. It's sort of like a, a great uh, piece on sort of uh, a survival guide to uh, to sports gambling if you've, uh, one, necessarily never gambled, or even two, even if you're an experienced gambler. I think some of the things that David uh, wrote about here are just like unbelievably like important things as a reminder. But for the purposes of this uh, a podcast, because it may have some people who haven't uh, had a ton of gambling experience, one of the things you're talking about is you should only risk two to five percent of your bankroll per wager. And I think there probably are some people out there who think, oh man, like if I love this game, I'm gonna what I am about five grand on this. Uh, but that's really not like what what given all your years of reporting this, David, right? Like what you have found is a sports betting is a long term investment in a grind rather than like a, a like a like a one off prayer. Correct. Absolutely. The the guys that do this uh, have done this for decades and make uh, you know um, make some of their income off of it. Uh, they're they're the guys that are betting two to five percent of their bankroll. Now maybe their bankrolls are a little bigger, but one of the guys I interviewed there started with a thousand dollars. That was his initial bankroll, and he slowly and slowly bet two to five percent. Uh, if he had a little more information, thought he had a little uh, better uh, advantage in, in one game. Uh, you know, he he would uh, bet 5% of his bankroll, but it's never these giant bets that take up almost all your money. That is just the way to ruin your bankroll. And, and my piece was about how to keep your bankroll alive to survive football season and get with it. So uh, two to 5% sounds like you have a $500 bankroll to start off with. Your max bet needs to be 25 bucks if you want to make it all the way through the season. If you start winning, your bankroll grows, your bank, your, your bet size can go up a little bit. In contrast, if you lose, start off bad, and it goes down, your bet size needs to go down as well. But that 2 to 5% is kind of the consensus of what the experienced sports bettors do with their bankroll. Am I correct that the average sportsman does not have that discipline? And I'm putting myself in there. And that's why that the house ultimately wins oh, absolutely. more than, than loses. Yeah. People scoff. Uh, you know, I had some Twitter replies. Oh, no, I'm going to bet 10%. And I was like, okay, you know, eventually you're going to the ups and downs, the variance of it. If you're betting 10%, you're going to lose. Tell me why sign-up bonuses right now are, are so important in the in the business and what that can mean for you as somebody who wants to uh, do this recreationally. Yeah, I mean, some of these bonuses, Caesars put out a $5,000 free bet. They'll match your deposit up and give you a free bet up to $5,000. I mean, that's crazy. Uh, you can just triple, double your bankroll immediately and, and get that out there. So uh, one of the recommendations of the guys I talked to, they were all like, hey, sign up for these best promotions that these books are offering right now we have a huge land grab going on in the sports betting market as sports betting experience across the nation uh, sports books are doing everything they can to acquire customers and that includes giving out these huge bonuses now i would also advise to make sure you read the fine print because sometimes you get this five thousand dollars you think you bet it once and you can withdraw that's probably not how it works there's a two to three times you must play it through uh, a rollover they call it uh, before you can access actually access the money, but still, 
if you are worried that, hey, man, I only got $200 to play in my bank, you know, I can't bet five or two percent or whatever, it'd be four bucks or 10 bucks. You can use these bonuses to expand, your, to grow your bankroll, and then you can bet a little bit more. So definitely take advantage of those. If you're getting ready to sign up, look at them all, see which one has the best. So basically, if I'm, if I'm reading this correctly, you have $5,000, you ultimately have to play that that full 5000 before you can cash out Correct. the whatever it is. You'd have to okay. bet 5000 Some places have it, you have to bet like two times the bonus they give you. So you'd have to bet it through right, twice. Yeah. Uh, so make sure okay, and read that. that. Yeah, that would make sense because, like, the the reality is nobody's giving you a five thousand dollars bonus. You make one two dollar bet, and then you can cash out their free forty nine hundred bucks or whatever. Correct. Right? Yeah. So, got it. Okay. Um, one of the things you mentioned that was really really interesting to me. I didn't know this um, because I, I'm someone who like I love the idea of futures. Uh, by the way, I've said this a million times in this podcast. I am have I gambled before? Yes. I am not a big sports gambler. It's not something I I will ultimately probably do in my life, mostly because I am protecting myself from my own ego that I think because I work in sports, I know like more than the average person and I know what's going to happen. And in my history of betting in Vegas and elsewhere, I, I sort of get humbled. So I, it's the reason I don't gamble is because I think working in the sports media, I, I am protecting myself from thinking I know more than the, the house does, which I do not. So I, I like to tell people that that's the reason I don't do it. But as David knows, I've told him this offline too. I find this whole world fascinating. It's really interesting journalistically. One of the things that I particularly find just interesting, David, just in terms of my own research of like what's going on and story ideas are futures. Um, and just, you know, what, like, for instance, obviously the futures right now in college football and the NFL are all over the place. You know, what people think uh, the Cowboys are going to do this year or Clemson's going to do this year. You know, how many touchdowns will Tom Brady throw over under, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I learned from your piece that I read is these are not smart bets at all. And the house has a massive advantage in all this stuff. Can you tell my listeners why? Yeah, they bake in the house when they make these futures odds, and we'll say odds to win the college football national championship. When they list all these odds, five to one, Alabama two to one, Oklahoma six to one, whatever they are, time they get it through, they have a built-in house edge that sometimes is, you know, 30, 40, even 50% at the books that really want to gouge people. So you are not getting a very good value when you bet futures. The second problem with futures is your money is tied up for, if I want to bet the odds to win the college football champions, my uh, my, my money is tied up for the next six months. Um, so those are some of the reasons not to. Now, some guys, they do play futures and they'll use it kind of as a, a live wager, almost a hedge type thing. They had two guys last year. Uh, they started thinking that Tom Brady was going to the Bucks. So they started betting the uh, bet Tampa Bay to win the Super Bowl shortly after last year's Super Bowl. And it was like 40 to one, got big, big prices. And then all of a sudden he did, and they were down to 12 to one. So the Buccaneers were down to 12 to one and they were able to use that. And of course, Tampa Bay went on to win. So they cashed out big, but they could have also hedged a little bit and played the other side, could have played the Chiefs in the Super Bowl to kind of hedge uh, their equity that they already had in their bets. But mostly since I was writing this for beginning bettors, um, I, I would be very careful and hesitant of playing futures. But people love them, right? Oh, absolutely. They're so They're attractive fine. to people. That's obviously the reason uh, they do it. Uh, all right. Let me finish up with this. Uh, two things. One, we just concluded the Olympics. Uh, can you give me a sense of just, uh, at least in the States, like, do people bet on the Olympics at all? Will they bet on something like uh, uh, the basketball team and in individual games? Or will they do something like, I don't know, over under on Caleb Dressel uh, medals? Like, do, the, do those kind of one to the it's sort of two questions here. So one. Give me a general idea of what people, if they even at all bet on the Olympics. Then two, are there prop bets for specific athletes or countries, et cetera? Um, first answer is very minimal. It's it's your very diehard betting crowd that will bet on the Olympics. The handle at sportsbooks here in the U.S. Uh, almost on all events uh, is minimal comparatively. Uh, you do get a little increased action. It's probably the most popular on the men's basketball team. And there was some some action on, on the women's soccer team as well. Books did obviously very well with U.S. women uh, getting knocked out there. Uh, but overall, betting on the Olympic uh, is minimal here in the U.S. Secondly, there are uh, over 
unders on like total medals won by the U.S. Uh, and th- it was very close, actually. I think they set it at, I want to say it was 112 or something like that. U.S. finished were 113 or 111. That's off the top of my head. But it, it was very close uh, right around the number that they set. So uh, that was kind of interesting. But yeah, you, you, you can find prop bets like that almost anywhere. The other one I'm really curious about is uh, Leo Messi obviously just moved from Barcelona to PSG. Massive, uh, massive international signing when it comes to soccer. I I have no idea when it comes to, uh, you know, traditional place like Las Vegas and now obviously some of these other states that have gambling. Is there any kind of market for people to bet on international soccer, whether they're sitting on a Saturday or Sunday and betting on individual Premier League games or even just again like the random like you know La Liga game or in this case now if people want to bet on Messi's team PSG like are there people in the states uh, one do the odds get offered like in the states I'm sure they do probably on international books and like if I was just some dude who loved soccer and lived in let's say Maine are there places I could go where I could bet on like PSG's first game in Liga 1 Yes, uh, almost all the sports books. Uh, Maine is not one of the states that have legalized it yet, but uh, just down the street in, in New Hampshire and up in the Northeast, uh, they would have odds to win the Premier League, for example. In fact, I just wrote something today, just kind of a little news item on the odds to win the Premier League, which kicks off tomorrow. Man City is an odds-on favorite then. Um, over in the UK, we don't have this as much over here, but over in the UK, you, there are markets on where Lionel Messi will play next. Uh, and so forth like that. So you'll see some uh, pretty significant movement when you start to hear in reports of that, and you'll see odds flip over there quite a bit. Here, we don't have those kind of markets. Uh, the interest, uh, betting interest in soccer is not nearly what it is in Europe, Europe and, and abroad. Um, but there is some, you know, um, I would say that in Colorado, again, that one of the best, they, they, they're the best at reporting um, the, the revenue and the amount wager on things and they break it down. Uh, table tennis actually attracted more betting handle th- than soccer in recent months. That's, any reason why? That's well, table tennis has this 24-7 cycle. They uh, broadcast and stream matches uh, that take place uh, throughout the night and pretty much all day. There will be dozens, if not hundreds, of matches that you're able to bet on. And people, during the pandemic, uh, when everything was shut down, table tennis over in Ukraine uh, and uh, over, over in that area, uh, Eastern Europe, that had these, you know, ongoing table tennis matches. And that was the only thing. And people found that they really, really enjoyed it. The constant action you can place, you can place live bets point by point, almost uh, people really got into it. And it's uh, staying power has been pretty impressive to me. Colorado, it's always up there. Yeah, I did. I did see that at the, you know, the beginnings of COVID-19, that that was a sport that was being uh, bet heavily. I did, I'm stunned that it actually, uh, uh, that it continues. That's really interesting. All right. Anything else that you over the next couple of weeks, David, are really paying attention to, or is this time of year for you really, really heavily focused on the NFL and college football? Yeah, I'm really looking at uh, NFL and college football. I am working on uh, one feature about betting head fakes, which I think people find pretty fascinating. They probably don't realize that a lot of the professional bettors they'll actually bet the wrong side of a game that they actually want to kind of what they call dummy up the line. If they want it, the line to be down at two and a half and it's at three, maybe they'll bet it at four and push it up to four and then take the other side for more money. Um, I'm probably explaining that poorly, but uh, it's a fascinating thing. And one of those things that uh, goes on in, in the sports betting world that people don't realize. David Purdom is a staff writer for ESPN. And again, that company's premier sports gambling reporter. Check out uh, all his work on ESPN.com. Follow him on uh, Twitter. He's an absolutely invaluable fellow if uh, you're interested in this content. David, uh, I can't tell you how I'm always interested in this and I always appreciate your time. Whether you come on this podcast or on the radio show in Toronto, I will certainly be calling on you again. I wish you the best of luck. I know it's the busy season for you. And uh, thanks so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, as I said at the top, Mirren Fader is a staff writer for The Ringer. 
And for the purposes today, the author of Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. Uh, If you're a basketball fan, you've probably already heard about this book or maybe read a review or seen it, but it comes out this week. Very exciting. Go to Amazon and other places to buy it. And pleased to be joined by Mirren Fader on the Sports Media Podcast. Mirren, you're in California, so thank you for waking up uh, early here and congratulations. Always an amazing day when a when a when a when a book comes out. Oh, thank you so much. I know I honestly can't believe it's here. Been working on it for a while. So great to be here. Okay. So um these some of these questions you will obviously have uh, answered in other um forums, but I want to ask for uh those who listen to this podcast. Why did you wanna write a book on Giannis? Why was why was he an interesting subject to you? Well, I started this when I did a story for Bleacher Report Mag, which is where I previously worked. And I actually didn't intend to write anything about Giannis. Um, I was going to his home to interview his youngest brother, Alex, who was one of the top uh, players in the area at the time in high school. And Bleacher was really big on prep. So that's you know, why I was there. And then Giannis just magically happened to be there. And the more time I spent with them and their mom and their other brothers, I just realized like there's so many sides to Giannis that maybe we aren't as familiar with, you know, everyone really at that time, this was before he won his first MVP, just wanted to comment on how freakishly athletic he was and, you know, his physical gifts. But when I saw how nurturing he was with his brothers, how interesting and compelling and charismatic and smart, I was just like, this guy is so fascinating. He would be perfect for a book. You obviously don't need the subject's um, uh, cooperation or permission to write a book on said subject, but obviously it, it makes a difference if you have access to them and access to their friends and family and their life. So when you made the decision that um, after doing the story on Alex, that you know I think this really Giannis's life is really rife for exploration. Can you take us through whatever process existed in terms of uh, talking to Giannis? When did you tell him you were writing this book? Um, did you talk to the family? What was sort of the the, the, the process of at least trying to have some kind of connection with the with the subjects of this book prior to the reporting and the writing. Yeah. So first I uh, reached out to the family that's more specifically the brother, Alex, and he steered me towards the agents. And I mentioned that I was interested in doing this and, you know, I've got to do a proposal. It's kind of hard to pitch something that you don't have. So you have to get the book deal first. Um, But I just wanted to be transparent and say, Hey, I'm interested in this. And um, so we did exchange a couple of messages. But then I had to get to work on the proposal, which was, you know, 40 pages, uh, probably more, honestly. Um, So that was in December, 2019. And then I shopped it around, uh, my literary agent shopped it around early January, 2020. And I got the deal mid-March, 2020, right as the pandemic started. So I actually flew to Milwaukee um, right before then, even though I hadn't signed the deal to interview the brothers again. Um, And so I essentially took the interview I had with Giannis from the BR story and the interview I had with his mom, Veronica, and uh, then the the extensive interviews I had with the brothers uh, during the pandemic at that point. Um, And then I just started reporting. Uh, And then 221 interviews later, it was due in one year. So March 1st, 2021, uh, yeah, it was finally done. <laughs> Did you, you know it'd be um it's it would be a very different proposition to pitch obviously the book today after he's won yeah. championship after he's won multiple MVPs when you're um when you're a literary agent first started talking to publishing houses in terms of interest uh, what were some of the things you you heard obviously you sold it uh, which is you know phenomenal and and obviously I would say now more phenomenal for the publishing house given what's happened but you know while Giannis was an all-star at that time he's in a very different space than he was then so what what were some of the things or some of the feedback you heard when you were sort of shopping the story yeah well so after by the time that I had turned in the proposal he had won his first MVP so like a month after I did the story he won that MVP so that definitely helped some of them were like you know he's really young I'm not sure you know a 26 year old should be a book but a lot were, you know, oh, of course, he's so fascinating. They understood that there was so much backstory uncovered and so much we don't know about him in his childhood. And he's just a fascinating, bigger than basketball type of book. So a lot of publishing houses were interested for sure. Um, 
you know, a lot of my mentors are a little mixed. They were just kind of like, he is really interesting, but like too young, you know, but I, I took, took a chance. All right. So let's get to the reporting. Uh, you know, what, obviously you mentioned, uh, you know, 200 and what is the final number of people you spoke to? 221. 221. Yep. Yeah. I know you're friends with Jeff Perlman. This is yes. Jeff Perlman <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, making sure you interview the, the, the laundromat attendant, the, yes. the night laundromat attendant or something like that. Exactly. Um, so, um, Obviously, you're, there's going to be, in terms of that process, uh, the family, the subject, friends, you ultimately go to teammates, opponents, etc. So, um, because this is a sports media podcast and we do get into process, can you take me through just how you made a decision on, okay, how am I going to approach this kind of massive undertaking? If I'm going to ultimately end up interviewing all of these people, uh, all of these people who are part of this subject's circle. Like I need some kind of organizational plan. So what for you is the organizational plan? Yeah. Well, my publisher actually had me on a 20,000 a word, um, a month deadline. So I did not have time to work how I normally work, which is report the whole thing and then write. So I was reporting and writing simultaneously. So I just thought, okay, well, if I have this deadline, um, every month I have to go chronologically. So the first thing I did was I did know the name of, of one coach that, um, he had, and I found him through some, I did a couple international stories over the last couple of years. And, um, I just contacted that person via WhatsApp and I got connected to that. And after every interview, it's like, okay, can you introduce me to anyone who knew him, played against him, with him, whatever. And so one person turned into three and then three into six. And there's a lot of vetting because just because someone says they're friends with him doesn't mean they're, you know, what if, what if they're not, you know, you, so I was like, can you show me some photos of you as children, um, you know, ask obscure names of other kids in the area, see if they knew them. So, you know, because it's not like you can Google Giannis's childhood friends. It just, this is new territory. It just, that reporting just hasn't been done. So um, it was a lot of work on the ground and, you know, reporting this March, 2020 to March, 2021, I didn't have the benefit of going to Greece like I had planned. So everything I had to do was from my apartment and be really scrappy. So I hired, yeah. So I hired a researcher on the ground in in Athens and they would send me um, photos and videos. And I interviewed um, so many Greek journalists and neighbors in Sepolia. And, you know, it just, it was hard also because, English is not their first language. And so I, I found a translator. And so, you know what, I just approached this, like, I have to be a grinder, you know, that's, you mentioned Jeff, like, that's, that's what he taught me. And so um, I actually really enjoyed that, because I felt like I knew nothing about his childhood other than sold trinkets on the street, and then he becomes an MVP, you know, so it was like trying to fill in the blanks. So, am I, so am I correct that you never, you have never stepped foot, um, on Greek soil no. in terms of sort of, uh, wow, that's sad. Uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> I wonder, well, I wonder now having gone through all the reporting that you've done, I wonder if you're almost going to make it uh, something personal for you that you want to ultimately see with your own eyes, all this reporting that you did, you know, via Zoom, via phone, via whatever. I mean, I definitely plan to go. There's a Greek translated version of the book that actually, it's funny. I talked with one Greek journalist, Nikos Papadoyanis, and he was so helpful. And he actually ended up translating the book for me. So I want to go and see it. Um, But yeah, you know, you can't predict a once in a lifetime pandemic. And that's what reporting is. Like you have to be scrappy no matter what happens. Like you have a deadline, you have to get it done. And also first book, um, just a lot of challenges. So I, uh, but I'm, but I'm proud of it for that reason, you know? What, um, give me a sense of how much you talk to Giannis himself. Um, you know, the thing obviously about a subject like that is there's so much, uh, there's so much already published, you know, in terms of other people who have done, interviews with him he's you know like literally he's living history so he's, he's current you know whenever he does something or talks at a podium that you know you have that ability to use that kind of uh content but did you get um singular sit downs with him uh during the course of writing the book and were those were those uh were, there, were those helpful i had the one one-on-one interview with him for the story i mentioned um And then I spent pretty much the day with him and his mom and his brothers um, at their home and then at the Bucks facility. Um, But after that, there was a pandemic and I couldn't 
see him after that. So, um, but there was so much left on the cutting room floor from that interview and also just like observing him in his home that I didn't use in the story. And so you see in the book, a lot of those quotes and scenes sprinkled in the book as well. Who For you, um, who are some of the people that you interviewed that turned out to be um, just like unbelievable gold in terms of his story. I, I've talked to Jeff a number of times uh, and a couple of times on this podcast. And, you know, for him, a lot of times it's, uh, you know, it's the, it's the 11th person on the Lakers in one of their Kobe years who turns out to be somebody who told him so much stuff as opposed to, uh, you know, Shaquille O'Neal. Although in his case, actually, he said Shaq was a great right. enemy. Do you know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying? You never, you never, you never really know who turns out to be sort of goldmine. So for you, for this book, who were some of the the sources or subjects you talked to who really like maybe uh, helped shape this book in, in terms of the details? Yeah, it was his childhood best friends and he's still best friends with a lot of them to this day. Um, so Nikos Gikas, uh, Michalis Kambaridis. Um, and then there was another childhood friend, um, Raman Rana. And the reason why I found these people so compelling is because Again, we just didn't know anything about childhood other than, you know, it was hard to find the next meal. Um, but what does that mean? How did you find the meal? What did you eat? Where did you go? And, you know, these people really gave me a sense of how hard it was, but also like what how he felt, how vulnerable he was, um, how emotional he was. Also, how optimistic he was, you know, when they saw his room for the first time, he it barely had anything in it and he wasn't ashamed. He was just like, one day I'm going to have a lot of books. I'm going to have a TV in my room and just things like that. And they were really illuminating also about the racism that he experienced growing up. That is something about Giannis's journey that's been completely swept under the rug. And so they were very candid about that and the neo-Nazi group Golden Dawn that was prevalent in their neighborhoods at the time. Um, and then his coaches, um, Coach Mellis and Coach Sikas, um, you know, they told me that Giannis was so hard on himself. He used to cry openly on the bench if he didn't play well. Um, and that went all the way to Milwaukee and, and the strength coach of the Bucks at the time, Robert Hackett and the coach Larry Drew told me that they had to tell him you can't cry in public. So it's these tender details that show a more vulnerable um, side of him. And and finally, the best interview, I think, was Ross Geiger. He was a Bucks assistant video coordinator, Giannis's rookie year, but they were best friends and they practically like lived at each other's apartments. And I spent hours talking with Ross and, you know, the photos that he sent me of him and just tender details like Giannis was afraid of Ross's dog, you know, just things like that. So I, I agree with the Jeff principle. Everyone has a story. You just got to hustle to get it. Yeah, and Russ Geiger was the, that was Giannis basically. There's a scene in the book about uh, like he's, he's taking his long arm yes. and like using it as a windshield wiper in the winter, which like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine if anything happened to Giannis? Oh my God. Uh, yeah, NBA franchise players probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, that you know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned some of the racism that he, um, that that he endured in Greece. Uh, some of the things that you had to do, I imagine, for this book is you had to learn a little bit about uh, Greek politics and the, the the state of that country when when Giannis lived there. Immigration, right, in terms of how Giannis was able to get here as well as get his parents here. And then, lastly, I, I, I mean, this strikes me just given everything in your book. I mean, Giannis is truly like an incredible immigrant story in terms of coming to the, coming to the U S he, you know, trying to maintain as best as possible, the sort of what he learned in another country, uh, and not get too Americanized while at the same time using the best ideals of America to become what he ultimately became. So you're, you're not only were you telling a singular athlete story, right? You're also dealing with some of these other, much broader topics that go beyond Giannis. Exactly. You know, it's funny at some points writing it, I was like, wait, you can't forget to put in this playoff series. You know, you got to make sure you have as much basketball as the human side um, because there was just so much stuff, you know, politics, race, identity, geography. Um, you know, I wanted it to feel like it was robust without taking you feeling like you're 
going on a different book. You know, sometimes when somebody zooms out like that, you immediately get bored and you give up. Um, but I, I just think it was impossible to talk about his story without talking about not just racism, but actual threat of violence. You know, Golden Dawn is a criminal organization and they would go through neighborhoods like his and terrorize migrants. And Kostas, Giannis's middle brother, was telling me, you know, we, we knew that we just couldn't we could not be out at night by ourselves. It's not like they went outside and they were terrified every day of their lives, but it was always this looming threat in the background. And, and Golden Dawn members would identify themselves. They would say, shout things like Greece is for Greeks. Um, and also the book chronicles the current day racism. I think that's another thing people don't understand. Even as Giannis has ascended to the highest ranks um, of global superstardom, he could not represent his home country any better. He is still a target of racism. P prominent politicians still call him disgusting racist words. There are murals of him to this day that are desecrated with swastikas. So um, it was just really important for me to talk not just about um, the things he went through, but the things he's going through now, because I think there is an element of inspiration about his story. Like you said, American dream and, you know, all of that. But it kind of glosses over these really tough parts that you just can't sugarcoat. Yeah. I mean, I, NBA fans have no idea about this. Uh, and, um, and it sort of is a reminder of how fortunate uh, so many of us are. So many other athletes are just having not had to even endure close, uh, close to that. Um, you know, I think uh, one last, uh, two last ones sort of about the book and then a, then a couple other uh, finish up with some sort of media stuff. Um, how fascinated were you as the writer of this just on sort of the, the luck element for the Bucks that ultimately like they took, uh, he was number 15 in the draft. Yeah. Am I right about mm -hmm. that? Okay. So, you know, obviously listen, he was a, he was tabbed to be a first round pick. Um, he wasn't an unknown quality, but at the same time, like, I'm just fascinated that sort of like how fortune fell to the Bucks that he was still available at that time. They made his decision to draft them. And then again, he turns out to be this once in a lifetime uh, unicorn. When you were talking to the um, members of the Milwaukee Bucks, like uh, executive staff at that time, what did they sort of tell you? How did, how did they reflect on what ultimately turned out to be, you know, arguably one of the greatest draft picks of all time? Yeah, well, I appreciated John Hammond's honesty in the interview with me, which was like, look, I'm not going to make this story more than it is. I had no idea Giannis was going to be Giannis. You know, I just I liked what I saw. I saw athleticism, but I didn't know. I mean, it was a huge gamble because the thing that everyone in the Bucks organization kept bringing up to me was that we drafted him without knowing his medical situation. They could not get him to America to do a physical because Giannis only got his citizenship papers fast-tracked at the last moment by the Greek government because unlike America, Greece doesn't offer birthright citizenship. So he's stateless his whole life, making it even hard to get harder to get seen by NBA scouts because the guy doesn't have a passport. He can't really travel to tournaments to get seen. He can't play for the top teams in his own country because he doesn't have papers. So again, it's all so um, miraculous. And Milwaukee takes this chance without really knowing what to compare him to. You know, when you're trying to draft a guy, you're saying, who can he be like? Well, they couldn't even determine what Giannis was like in the grainy film that they had to work off of. So it is super miraculous, but it's also the thing that people kept saying to me was, well, it's the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, it's number 15. Senator at the time, Herb Cole just said, just be competitive, just do enough to get to the last seed. It's fine. And so them winning this and taking a chance on Giannis, he actually, I think, I think this is how I feel about it. Like the Bucks saved Giannis. You know, they saved him from his financial situation, his family's difficulties. And then Giannis in turn saves the Bucks. They were in grave threat of leaving the city. And somehow this gamble on this unknown guy ends up saving the whole franchise. It's crazy. You um, were taping this, Mirren, on uh, August 12th. That's a Thursday. And over the last 24 hours, um, one of your, a part of your book be went viral on social media. Um, which I imagine like when you're the author of this must be just a little, uh, I don't know, surreal, I think to watch. And that had to do with, um, your reporting about, um, the Bucks years with Jason Kidd and one player in particular, Larry Sanders, uh, talking about, uh, kids treatment, 
of him uh, and to to quote Larry, at least in one place, we said, I don't think he's a bad person, but mentally he kind of like brain fucked me a little. It was a lot of, I love you, kiss you on the cheek. Now it's all about money. Who cares about your mental health, your body breaking down? Uh, that got a lot of attention. Um, I imagine uh, that's a direct quote to you from Larry Sanders. When you were reporting this um, and sort of getting inside those Bucks seasons, um, I don't know. Did you Did you anticipate that the reaction, particularly among NBA fans, would be like, wow, that's... That's pretty eye-opening to me and a little disturbing. I, I just, as the author, I wanted to get your viewpoint on that. Well, you know, it's distressing when you work so hard to create a book of nuance and fair and balanced reporting. And you can see in the Ringer excerpt from that chapter that we ran last week that there's plenty of positive things about Jason Kidd as well. It's just some random person who I don't know decides to tweet three pages of a 400 page book without any context whatsoever. And then I get millions of DMS and comments and it just completely, uh, it minimizes my hard work and the fair reporting that I had and how many people I talked to, to get the complexity of Jason kid. Um, in the book, I talk about how critical Jason was to Giannis's development and the good things he did and the relationship they had. And I definitely had people say positive things as well. But there's also this really awful side uh, in the quotes that were pulled. Um, and he was very polarizing for that reason. And a lot of people um, were hurt and did not uh, agree with his methods. So Unfortunately, that's social media on uh, Twitter didn't help. They said excerpt. It wasn't an excerpt. It was just a random person tweeting. We didn't have that in an, in an official excerpt or anything. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Jason Kidd era was fascinating. I talked with so many people. Of course, I talked with Larry Sanders for that. But that was the thing that everyone kept bringing up when I mentioned, like, so what was Jason Kidd like? And the Christmas practice was the thing. So, you know, there's probably 10 people that recounted that scene to me so yeah how did Gian, I, yeah I, I didn't read that chapter how did Giannis feel about Jason Kidd as a coach both development wise uh, temperament wise etc yeah he really respected Jason he um he appreciated that Jason trusted him with the ball you know Jason was the first coach to say you can be uh the next generation big man point guard and um you know Giannis really began to take off with his triple doubles when Jason put him at point Giannis would have succeeded no matter what coach he had. So it's not like, yes, we must credit. But of course, like, yes, Jason played a role and he spent a lot of time with Giannis. But there was also a side of Giannis that didn't always agree with Jason's methods and how Jason would call him out in film sessions and the way Jason operated. He wasn't a yeller. He wasn't uh, intense like that, but he would sort of do these mind games to, um, you know, manipulate and, and make people, you know, kind of humiliate people in film sessions and stuff. And, you know, people can read that excerpt on, on the ringer to get more of a sense of that. But um, at the end of the day, you know, Giannis is a very positive person and I, I'm sure he, you know, feels positively about kid in addition to the complex things we've talked about. So it's complicated. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the planet premier league podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's finish up on this. What was it like for you watching the playoffs this year knowing that your book uh, <laughs> is scheduled to come out and seeing like you know oh my god like the bucks are on a run here and then obviously the nba finals uh you know Giannis is it's like jordan and bill russell I mean, what what knowing that you're about to like present the world this you know this massive manuscript on this uh on this subject what was that like for you well, it was really exciting. And I know, you know, I'm an old school journalist. And so for me, there's never cheering in the press box. I'm like so old school to the T, like do not even let somebody get you a coffee. But 
in this one circumstance, I was cheering for the Bucks because it was a very unique circumstance. Um, but I think for me, uh, you'll see in the book, there's a large portion of the book that talks about the history of the Bucks and how people said basketball can't work in Milwaukee. And it chronicles the departure of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as kind of like a stark contrast to Giannis and will the generational player stay this decades old wound from Kareem leaving. And so when I was watching the playoffs, I had all of these things in mind and it was so special to see them do it because so much of the book shows how painful it is to be a Bucks fan, how many years of mediocrity. And some of my favorite interviews were with Milwaukee fans. So, um, yeah, it was, it was just so special. And I kept in touch with a lot of the, my sources and it was like the best, the best thing ever to happen to them. So it was just, it was very cool. What is your plans in terms of doing an update for a paperback or something else? Cause, um, since obviously there's now a lot, uh, you know, you can probably write a book literally on the uh, playoffs, <laughs> let, let alone uh, Giannis's, uh, Giannis's story. Yeah, I'm going to have a new epilogue in the paperback edition um, covering this like finals run and everything that happened because the book ends um, after he says he's going to stay um, in Milwaukee and sign the extension. So that'll be out. The new paperback with a new epilogue is coming out spring 2022. Yeah, I uh, I'm not surprised Giannis stayed. I think if you sort of followed his career, um, you might have expected that. But I'm not going to lie. Living in Toronto, I really thought if he actually decided to leave, the Raptors would have had a real shot, which is very rare for a player of that caliber to consider going to Canada. But Giannis is a different guy and an international guy. So, but yeah. yes, he will now. We be the Bucks for for what seems like forever. Um, what kind of book tour are you doing? This is a first for you. So. Um, I got to think it's pretty exciting to, I don't know if you're traveling to Milwaukee or, or other places, but uh, how are you going to promote this book? Yeah. And unfortunately everything is virtual because of COVID, um, which really sucks because, you know, going to other people's book tours have always been my like favorite activity as a book nerd. Um, but yeah, we just did an event with Boswell Books, Milwaukee's bookstore on pub day. I have an event Friday, Chevalier's book. So it's all, it's all over zoom. So, um, going on a lot of podcasts, as you said. And it's funny because I've essentially been on like a month long promo tour because we were trying to capitalize on the finals. And so throughout the playoffs, it was almost like promoting the book and talking about the playoffs the whole time. So it normally everything should start this week, but for me in this unique circumstance, it's been like a month of this, <laughs> which I'm grateful for. What's the, uh, so let's end with this just cause it's kind of fascinating. I mean, again, you're trying to promote a book, as you said, in COVID, which is just a very abnormal circumstance. I, you know, once in a hundred year lifetime pandemic and, um, you know, nothing is normal about this, but what, what it, your, your publisher is, uh, remind me again, Hachette? Hachette. Yeah. Okay. All right. So major publisher. Um, what, what are people there tell you about promoting a sports book or I shouldn't call it a sports book. I don't mean to sort of tag it that way. What, are, what are people, what, what are the people at that company telling you in terms of how do you promote in 2021 in the middle of a pandemic? Obviously, first and foremost, I imagine your social media feed is massive. You want to use the ringer. Uh, you know, Perlman has told me in these situations, you sort of have no shame and you call on every person you possibly know to help you out. What, what have they told you or what have you done in terms of trying to get the word out? Yeah, well, it's been weird for me because I'm not somebody that likes social media. Like, I still don't have an Instagram. Um, but I'm going on a million podcasts. You know, at the height of it, I was doing like 15 a day. Um, sometimes, you know, we're talking super early because I'm just used to it. Like, I had one at 6 a.m. today, my time. Um, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, the grind of, the grind of um, going on podcasts and radio and national TV and uh you know, somebody's podcast or regional stuff. Um, and then having as many excerpts as possible. Um, so we had Fox sports ringer, New York times, and they put it in print, which was amazing and unheard of. And then we've got one on Friday coming as well. Um, so trying to just do as many excerpts as possible. And I think there's no magic formula. I think it's just being authentic and being yourself, you know, it's going to be weird if, if I start trying to act like someone else. Um, so yeah, I think just putting in the work to promote it, but to be honest with you, this is such a unique thing that even with the pandemic, even with my hustle, it's more about 
the love that people have for Giannis rather than anything to do with me. Um, I think people are, they've never been more hungry to learn about who he is as a person. You know, I think what we witnessed in the playoffs is not just a superstar coming into basketball immortality, but somebody that fascinates people with what he has to say and how wise he is. Um, The ego humility quote going viral, like people want to know how he became so wise. And so, you know, I just got very lucky that I have this human book that hopefully will shed light on who he is as a person. Yeah. That ego humility thing was amazing. Um, and, uh, having read the excerpts in those places, uh, congrats, Nadia always, Thank you. Uh, New York times and Washington post, uh, don't always want excerpts. And that's, uh, that's a pretty amazing accomplishment. Uh, Mirren Fader is a staff writer for the ringer and the author of Giannis, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP, uh, soon to appear on a podcast, uh, <laughs> next, next, next door to your house, as the book publishing world, uh, shows us, but, uh, Mirren, congratulations. Um, uh, the reviews of the book have been great as, uh, you know, our mutual friend, Jeff Perlman would say, like, you know, to do sort of show no humility in terms of accepting, every possible form well not every possible form but nearly every possible form <laughs> when it comes to uh promoting a book that's uh that's what you have to do in 2021 and congratulations uh it's very cool for Thank to see you. anybody in the business uh um have a debut book that's very exciting stuff uh, check out Mirren Fader on um her work on the ringer check her out on twitter if you want to follow her and then Giannis the improbable rise of an NBA MVP available on Amazon and elsewhere. Thanks for joining me today, Mirren, on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to David Purdom from ESPN and Mirren Fader of The Ringer and obviously her new Giannis book uh, for their time and uh, insights. Uh, two interesting guests, two people doing interesting things in sports media. Um, if you like this kind of stuff, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch archive page. Uh, previous guest, Rebecca Lowe of NBC Sports last week from Tokyo. That was a great conversation with her. Talked about... Um, just being on air at the Olympics in her position and uh, Premier League coming up and just, you know, what she sees with her future as the Premier League rights are, uh, are coming up very quickly. Kavitha Davidson before that on declining Olympic viewership and how Simone Biles uh, was covered by uh, American media entities. Before that, we had Chad Finn uh, on the Olympics, uh, Melanie Newman, broadcaster for the Orioles and Masson on the, uh, the MLB game where it was an all-female group who were broadcasting and then just uh mike golick jamel hill head down the list hopefully you'll find uh, some interesting things for you um please leave us a five-star review and some nice words that how that's how this podcast continues as always my thanks to patrick antonetti for producing this podcast thank you to everybody at cadence 13 and mostly thanks to you the audience for listening we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast